You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopolies through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. This week on 3CR's Renegade Economist, we are presenting a fresh perspective, a new lens on the rise and fall of societies. As you know, uh, we're very interested in the role of the natural value of the earth and how things such as the Kondratiev wave can give us an insight into how commodity price cycles influence the economy and thus society. Uh, And within that is the smaller uh, 18.6-year cycle as well that uh, Fred Harrison and Phil Anderson are big supporters of. But today we are joined by Jim Penman, PhD, the author of Biohistory, Decline and Fall of the West. Many of you will have seen Jim's uh, uh, work uh, driving around the city. He's also the CEO of Jim's Mowing, uh, Australia's largest franchise organisation. So, Jim, fantastic to have you on the show. Uh, Give us an overview of your book, Biohistory. Okay, well, I started off studying history and then trying to understand the patterns behind the rise and fall of civilization. And from that went to cross-cultural anthropology and then to zoology and eventually to biochemistry and brain function. And came to the conclusion that civilization is based on a psychological change in people that was originally evolved to adapt animals to restricted food environment. So we created a sort of artificial food restrictions through things like chastity and so forth which causes a change in attitude. And civilization has collapsed because when they become wealthy enough, it, it breaks down this pattern and they, and they move back to a more food plentiful psychology, which is not very favorable to civilization. It's such a confronting view on things, but then there are little hints that you see through society in that uh, the third generation to a wealthy family often lets down the, the, the family uh, history. Exactly right. Urban, wealthy urban societies always go through this process eventually, and the wealthier they are and the more urban they are, the quicker it happens. And so through the book, you go back, uh, back to the Middle Ages and beyond to look at how various societies have suffered this fate. Uh, uh, can you give an example or two to spell out where you're coming from? Well, the most famous one is obviously the Roman Empire, and you can see signs of a change as early as the Punic Wars in the late 3rd century BC, but you get a change from impersonal values of the public towards loyalty to one man, breaking down of the systems of constitution and law, loss of uh, military discipline in ordinary citizens, and, and eventually the end of the Republic, and then after... Rome survived a long time by taking in a lot of provincials and sort of Romanizing them, and they go through the same process of decay. But eventually the whole thing just collapsed. But it's basically a psychological change. Which is a bit of a challenge for us because we like to think that uh, it's... Sure, there's an 
an element of temperament, but it's the rules of economic engagement that uh, lead to the rise and fall of societies. And you're saying, hang on a minute, uh, we've got to look at the epigenetics of it, a branch of biology looking at the changes in genetic expression as a result of the environmental factors people live within. So it's quite a challenge. The interesting thing about biohistory, unlike any other theory of society, is that you can actually test it in the laboratory. For example, one of the implications was that certain things are mediated by smell. That if you you could use pheromones to change behaviour, and we've we've tried this on rats and had some very dramatic results. You can actually get rats to behave as if they're shortage of food just by smelling the urine from rats that are short of food. And there's there's many many other predictions that the great thing about a scientific theory is that you've got to be able to test it. You've got to be able to create a hypothesis which is not obvious, and then go into the laboratory and test it. And and every aspect of biohistory can be testable. And I have a research foundation which is actually doing that right now. Now, some people have criticised this book uh, because it it broaches into, well, it's suggested in the closing chapter or two that uh, eugenics might be an answer. What's the difference between eugenics and epigenetics? (laughs) Yes, I know people get confused. I've had some people who were sort of, you know, fascist-type people approaching me and saying, oh, you're on the same side. And I said, no, I'm not. This is epigenetic, not genetic. Genetic is permanent. Genetics is in the genes, the gene difference between a European, Asian, African skin color, for example. This is an epigenetic change, which means if you, if you change the environment, which includes the environment of your parents and what happens in the womb and everything else, then you change the character completely. And in my belief, it's the epigenetics. The, the genetic differences between people are relatively trivial between races and, and cultures, for example, but the, but the epigenetic differences are very, very major and important. Okay, well, let's um, step through some of the detail because uh, in this confronting approach uh, as a parent who um, likes to be, uh, uh, we have a philosophy of treating our kids as adults and allowing them to explore elements of risk and to make good decisions uh, based on, on those sort of judgments. It was very interesting that Part of your historical analysis and some of the studies you've done in in the lab uh, points to the role of uh, a strict parenting in early infancy. Uh, Can you explain that within this concept of uh, C and the civilized factor that you see is so important in the rise and fall of societies? When when you say strict, the one thing I must say, it's got to do with control, not punishment. Punishment has a very different effect. But control of a child in a way that that brings the child's will on board, in other words, where they accept it, rather than being exposed by fear, can increase this this characteristic we call C, which is the civilized, hardworking, monogamous, disciplined type of character. There are big differences according to the age, though. The particular thing that's been associated with Western civilization is control of infants, which can start very early, even in the first year of life. And and say, like in the Victorian era, when children were very rigorously toilet trained and disciplined from a very early age. In, for example, Arab cultures, discipline doesn't really start until about the age of six, so it's very different. And what you get when you discipline an infancy is a character which is very impersonal, very good with machines, very strong impersonal values. 
It, it's an interesting point, actually, that there was this one society in, in Melanesia, the Manusals, described by Margaret Mead, who, probably because of reasons, because they went to live on these uh, lagoons, in these stoot houses on lagoons, they had to discipline their infants very, very early so they wouldn't fall in the water. And they developed this extraordinary culture which was incredibly commercial. And, and when they were exposed to machines, they loved machines. They were really, really good at them. But they had very strong impersonal values. They didn't have any political organization beyond the village. But they were very, very good at this commercial machine orientation. So to me, it's not a coincidence. If you have a look at all of history, the strongest control of infants was around about 19th century, particularly in northern Europe. And that is where the Industrial Revolution began. And the cultures that don't have that psychology are not nearly as good at industrialising. Japan is another example, too, of all the Asian cultures. Japanese start controlling their children younger than any other. And they're also the ones that most quickly and easily adapted to industrialization. Well, onto the fasting side of things. Why is that an important aspect to uh, ensuring the rise of a civilization? Fasting. Well, the, the, the influence of food supply. Well, there's certain things. We call them C promoters, things that uh, uh, change this character, create this kind of civilized character. Food restriction is certainly one of them. So if you limit your diet, that will certainly help. Any form of discipline, especially one that you accept, will tend to do it. Chastity, especially in teenage years, will do that too. A lack of sexual activity. All these things are powerful sleep promoters. They all work, by the way, by limiting testosterone. They reduce the level of testosterone in the blood, and that has ongoing effects on, on character, epigenetic and otherwise, particularly when it's in early life. Doesn't sound like it's going to be very popular, this theory. I mean, how did you come up with that one, that lowering testosterone is actually good for a disciplined future? Well, yes. People have the idea that more testosterone is fantastic. You're confident, you're, you're dominant and stuff. But if you actually have a look at, at the statistics on testosterone, what you find is the levels of testosterone tend to be very low in, really low in, in um, like professions, people who've got high education, people who are sort of working class in the middle, and people who are unemployed tend to score the highest. So the high testosterone is associated with low professional success. And if you have a look at, um, by going back to Kinsey, for example, he was the great apostle of the sexual revolution, but he found some interesting statistics, and, and one of them was that um, the, the more sex you have in your teenage years of any kind, the less successful you are, the less education you get, and the less income you're going to end up with. But you, can, you could also argue that geniuses such as Bertrand Russell, uh, John von Neumann, Richard Feynman, uh, plenty of them uh, are womanizers and, uh, you know, they're, they're hugely successful in work. Yes, it also depends on what age, though. Like I said, a lot of these things happen in adolescence. It's incredibly important in the beginning. The earlier these influences come, the more important they are. So somebody's character is developed during adolescence at a time of, you know, strict control in these sort of ways. And it's not just chastity too. As I said, it's parental discipline and all kinds of things that go, in, go into it. Then at a later age, they might be a womanizer and they have those kinds of activities, but they also, they, they maintain the character. Epigenetic settings are fixed to a large extent in very early life. They can only be changed to a limited extent later on. 
It is striking, though, too, I might say, how many great men of genius have very limited sexual lives, either because they're not interested, like, say, Isaac Newton was supposed to have died a, a virgin, for example. Goodness me. Well, you certainly got me thinking, Jim Penman, here on 3CR's Renegade Economist. Uh, and so... Has there been much peer-reviewed study on on these sort of aspects you're talking about? What I'm actually talking about is called, um, it's a branch of evolutionary psychology called life history study. And, and what we're talking about is changing from a fast life history to a slow life history. The, the basic idea behind it is that in a food-limited environment, you, you behave in a way which is different. You, for example, you form, tend to form exclusive territories, form pair bonds, spend more time with your offspring, have less sexual activity, you, you, you breed later, you spend a lot more time looking after you know, fewer infants, this kind of thing. Whereas when you're in an, a very environment with plentiful food, you tend to breed very, very fast and, and have all the, the kids you want. So it's actually, in terms of, of biology and in terms of evolutionary psychology, this kind of ideas are fairly well known. The, the radical thing about what biohistory is that it's applying it to human civilizations in a way that most biologists haven't done. Of how to create the conditions to, to change people's temperaments so that they yeah. uh, have this form of discipline. So when I hear you talking about actual benefits of food insecurity and how that triggers this uh, primary human instinct of uh, self-preservation, is, is that the sort of instinctual sharpening uh, this program you're lining up is, is working towards? It's not so much food insecurity, it's just limited food. If you have very unstable food, like periodic famines, that has a very different effect. It makes people more aggressive. You know, the Ramadan fast is an example of that, or patriarchy has the same kind of effects. This is more consistently limited food. And, and as I said, things like chastity and, and, and parental discipline have the same kind of effect. Yeah. Other things too, for example, um, not taking too much caffeine is, is another way of, of having these effects. It won't be popular with everybody. It would be very useful for, for treating a lot of mental, a lot of um, psychological ailments that are actually got to do with having an overly fast life history. There are other factors involved in this system of biohistory and you term of something called V, which uh, looks at the physiological system associated with stress responses and related behaviours such as aggression that help animals survive in dangerous environments. Tell us a bit about V and why this is important. V is a, it's a reaction to unstable food, which is very different to see. It's still food limitation, but instead of being chronically short, of food, you have occasional very severe famines. And also the same thing can be triggered by occasional stresses, like say attack by predators and so forth, and having a very, very anxious mother in early life, not, not an uh, abusive one, but very, very loving but anxious tends to have the same effect, which is why patriarchy is associated with the... And, and the reason that it works for animals is because if your food supplies are very variable. You need to be able to work together as a group. So high V is associated with very strong um, sort of military skills, people who work very well in a small group fighting against outsiders. And whether that's a, a you know, band of human warriors or baboons fighting off leopards, it's the same kind of idea. And it makes these animals very good at migrating 
working together and migrating to areas where there may be more food available or, or fighting off neighbours and so forth. So in human history, of course, the, the, the classic of that is the barbarians who come from the, the desert and the steppe where it's very, very harsh conditions and overrun the soft peoples of the civilised lands. And over time, those kinds of civilized values are locked into cultures like, like Islam, where you've got patriarchy and fasting to make them very, very high V. So that's the reason why Islam is associated with so much aggression in the world today. Um, it's not Islam itself. It's, the, it's the, the practices that are associated with Islam, like patriarchy, fasting. But then their economic output in the Middle East isn't as great as it could be. Why aren't they a, a booming, powerful region? Well, they are booming because they're booming in birthright, which is what V is very good at. What they don't have is C. They don't control their children as tightly, particularly in the first six years of life. They don't have this what we call infancy, this early control. They're very, very indulgent. There's, there's a better proverb that says from naught to six you treat your son like a raja, from six to twelve as a slave, and for after twelve as a friend. That, that's kind of a simple way of looking at it, but the lack of control. It's, it's control that does it. Chinese tend to, for example, tend to control their children um, a bit earlier, it seems, than Arabs do, but not as early as, say, traditional Europeans, which is why they're fairly good economically, but not they haven't industrialised in general to the European extent. And the role then of stress, why is this beneficial? It depends on the kind of stress, whether it's beneficial or not. Certain kinds of stress, like to be in a, in a uh, subject to a tyrannical authority in chronic fear is actually very, very bad for you. But occasional severe stresses and then periods where there's, what that does is actually, it tunes up the stress reaction system. And there's a, lot of, there's a lot of science on this. If you regularly tune, like it's like if you have a car and you never use it, 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 it tends to wear out, you know. Whereas if you, if you give it a run every now and then, it works well. Exercise is another example. Your body needs to be exercised. It needs to be at its fullest extent. Well, the stress reaction system is the same. If it doesn't get much practice, if it's always very, very low stress, when stresses come along, your body doesn't know how to react to it, and it reacts very badly. It, it puts masses of cortisol, which would stay high and don't come down again. Whereas if, you, if your stress reaction system is very highly tuned, it, the, the, the cortisol levels go up. Cortisol is your main stress hormone in, in humans. And then it comes down again when the stress is over. And you also tend to react with hormones like adrenaline and noradrenaline, which are a lot more positive. They're, they're fight and flight type things, but they, they react positively to the, to the stress. And then when the stress has gone over, they don't. If we apply this theory then to the modern world, uh, how are you seeing uh, evolutions of the West playing out? Well, we're going down very fast. And that's pretty obvious if you look at it. Um, look, look at all the, the increased productivity that should be associated with computers. And computers are fantastic tools. So why is it that over the past decade or so, we're not getting any overall productivity increase at all in Western countries? Jim, one of the reasons for that is that uh, the way they work out, the multi-factor productivity is they have uh, as part of the 
denominator the land bubble. So the higher the land prices go, the worse it looks like we're working, and from that, uh, less rights to increase wages we have. So yeah. there's you know probably some contrasting issues there, but go on. I, I don't I don't disagree with that. I think that the, I, I agree with you totally about land taxes and so forth. That our taxation system is very poor. It taxes things like um, employment, for example, rather than taxing land or, or carbon taxes and things that are much more efficient. But the fact of the matter is, yeah, you're right in that. But there's still an overall pattern. And what my theory suggests is that not only and bear in mind this, this was a theory developed back in the 70s and 80s when growth was strong, that growth would eventually slow down and go into reverse. So over the next few decades, you're going to find the level of wealth in Western countries going down, not just stagnating, but, but going backwards. That's what my theory predicts. The interesting thing, too, is, is it's easy to test this because once we've, we've figured out the epigenetic changes associated with this C factor, we should be able to apply it to individuals and say, okay, test people who are successful economically and those who aren't, controlling for things like intelligence, for example. And those who have this C epigenetic changes should be far more successful than those that don't. And countries that have these kinds of changes will be better than those that don't, and cultures and groups within society. So you can actually, you can actually test it quite readily. And we intend to do that over the next few years. One of the things that I struggle with is that about 100 years ago, uh, some of uh, our our, our forebearers who were interested in this Georgia's economic system recognized that the mental capacity of the everyday person wasn't quite at the level needed to understand this basic fact that those who own the earth have a huge advantage over anyone trying to run a business or earn a wage. Uh, so they set up the school of philosophy. And here we are now 100 odd years later and in a remote control era where uh, people just uh, sponge off, off television, uh, uh, things are provided to them on a platter and there's a lack of questioning of uh, the big picture and from that uh, we also surround ourselves in like-minded people so uh, never really challenge our thinking with outside perspectives yeah look, this all fits I, I, in I, within your theory i quite agree with you actually and, and and as you know we have very similar views on such things the problem is that these changes in attitude are so deeply based in 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 psychology which is epigenetic at heart that you, you can't change them intellectually. You can't convince people because they're just not psychologically capable of handling it. So you just can't do it. Like, like look at things like the birthright, for example. You, you just can't control the birthright. It's, it's something that, like the Emperor Augustus, for example, was very concerned about the declining birthrate in Rome and he used to give lectures to his nobility to have more children. It didn't work. No matter how powerful he was, and he was more powerful than any leader, he couldn't change the basic psychology. So even if you had a dictatorship, if you were in total control of society and you imposed these sorts of, of, of taxes and, and, and systems, you're not still changing the basic psychology of the individual. Let me give you another example. Okay, invasion of Iraq, all right? Iraq has an evil 
tyrant in government. Therefore, all you've got to do is to get rid of the tyrant and you've got a peaceful democratic republic. Well, what happened? Nothing like that. Actually, what you get is either a total anarchy or a return to an even worse form of dictatorship under ISIS. And that's because the psychology of the people there is not attuned to peaceful, democratic, economically productive societies. They are, they are traditional Arabs and they're very good at, at, at powerful, brutal leaders and following them. That's their psychology, and if you don't have that, they tend to rebel. Well, on that population front, uh, a counter-argument too, that is that when societies become wealthier and we have decent health and education systems, the Ethiopian farmer understands he doesn't need 10 kids because he, he will know that uh, two or three will, will survive and that will be enough to look after him, in, in, he and his wife, in, in uh, later years. So uh, that sort of population trend has um, been... Uh, demonstrated time and time again that when we have good health and education systems birth rates do fall just like we're seeing here in Australia where our natural birth rate somewhere around about 1.3-1.4% and we need 2.1% to uh, maintain current population levels so that's uh, being uh, uh, supplanted. But then, but, then, but then have a look at the groups that have more children for example, um, Mormons for example um, or even more extreme Orthodox Jews or people with those kinds of values. They live in a wealthy society yet they have lots and lots of kids. And what you find is that these kinds of groups tend to be very disciplined, particularly about things like sex. And the more disciplined they are, the more children they tend to have. So it's not, it's, it's a lot of it's got to do with whether you want children. People have children because they want children. They, they, and they don't have children because they're not so interested in children. It's not just economic. But talking about Ethiopia is a good example. Have a look at the stats. What, what's happening? Where, where in the world is the population growing? Well, there's two areas, sub-Saharan Africa and the, and the Middle East, uh, where, where Islam is particularly strong. And those areas tend to have expanding populations, not as fast as in the past, maybe. And all the areas that are the other areas, particularly in the West and China and everywhere else, um, they're all going down. So the more conservative your values, the more you're with traditional religious disciplines, chastity, those kind of things, the more kids you have. It's it's kind of weird. So you don't have kids when you're 18, but then when you've got a house, you've got a job, you found your love of your life, you're 25, then it's kids for the next 15, 20 years. Well, but that's a, that's a psychology. I mean, I started having children when I was uh, actually broke in debt, working as a lawn mowing contract. I've got 10 kids, and, and the reason is I love kids. It's, it's never been an economic decision. It's just purely emotional. I enjoy being around kids. I enjoy having them. I enjoy talking to them. I enjoy directing them, playing with them, whatever. People have children because they like having children. Economics is not the beyond end all. I think it's vastly overrated as an explanation for human behavior. You look at things like depressions, for example. There's no, there's no economic sense to recessions. Why do people get so absurdly optimistic at some stages, like in the late 20s, and so absurdly pessimistic at others? You've got to look at the psychology behind it. And I believe depressions aren't economic at all. They're psychological. You get prosperity. It causes a drop in the C factor. It causes a rise in anxiety, which causes a depression. You could and, also and look at another thing, too. You could look, also look, at, look at the birth rate as an example of that. When 
in my theory, if you have this kind of strong C behavior controls in late childhood and adolescence, and this is, you can do this cross-culturally, you tend to have more children because that's, that, that's the time that you really promote C, late childhood, adolescence. Have a look at what happened to the generation that was, had their late childhood and adolescence during the Depression of the 30s. What happened when they, when they got to childbearing age back in the 50s? What'd you get? Baby boom. And then the children who are born in prosperity in that period, baby bust. Happens every time. But we also had uh, the, the return from the war, war era and uh, there was a big drive for population then when the community did listen on back of uh, hang, hang, the post-war economic the benefits. Okay. So war causes a surge in birth rates. Have a look at the statistics of what followed the First World War. You've got the opposite. You've got a plunge in birth rates. The birth rates dropped dramatically all through the 20s, not for the, because of the Depression, but in the most prosperous time. The birth rate plunged. Why? Why didn't do it? Okay, you might have me there. Another interesting thing, too, is if we can actually measure things like the level of cortisol in, in, in urine, for example, um, in the sewers, we should be able to predict recessions with far more accuracy than anybody else can. <laughs> so there's, there's a lot of very practical treatments that come out of biohistory. It's not theoretical. It's actually very, very hard-headed and practical. And once we start testing this and people start to see, hey, this stuff works, I think it'll, it'll probably be affected more for that reason. And that was Jim Penman, author of biohistory.org. Check out biohistory.org. He's the man behind Jim's mowing. What an entertaining discussion, uh, pushing us outside our usual boundaries here on 3CR's Renegade Economy with your host Carl Fitzgerald. So uh, yeah, stay posted uh, on the Earthsharing website for the show notes this week. And please, if you'd like to support my work, uh, visit prosper.org.au and become a member for just $30. All right, uh, let's move over to Raising the Roof.